listening together to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. As we prepare our hearts, would you please join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, there are a lot of things that may be working in the hearts of your people today. Uncertainty, pressures, responsibilities, maybe sometimes fear. Today we come and in this moment we pray that your spirit will bring an ease to our minds and our hearts. Allowing us to hear well what it is that our Savior says. Help us hear, help us internalize. Grant to us the gift of understanding. Both what the word that we hear means for the people around us, but also and more importantly, what it means for us. So come, Heavenly Father. In this moment, in this time, enable us to set aside all other concerns and simply listen as your son speaks. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I'd like to begin today by putting up on the screen a number of different numbers. I'll just say that these are not happy numbers. The first one, 623,471. It's the number of abortions that were performed in 2018. Roughly 60 cities the size of Pella. The second number, 40.3 million. 10 million of which are children. It's the number of people who are in slavery around the world as of 2017. 10 million children. 4.8 million of those in the sexual exploitation industry. The third number, 16,214. It's the number of people who were murdered in the United States in 2018. The next, 71 million. As of June, it's the number of people who have been displaced worldwide by war, or persecution or other violence. People, number of people who are not living at home because it is not safe for them to be there. 
The next number, 4,305, is the number of Christians who were killed for their faith in 2018. 1,847 are the number of churches and other Christian buildings that were attacked. 3,150 are the number of Christians who are now in prison, having been arrested and and sentenced without trial. And 245 million are the number of Christians that are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution for their faith. The last number, 47,173. It's a number of people who in 2017 committed suicide. 1.4 million are the number of people who attempted suicide in 2017. The highest rate of suicide in our country, by the way, are middle-aged white men. I know that we all sense day in and day out to some degree or other that this world is not the way it is supposed to be. But when I see numbers like that, the reality really jumps out at me. And I find myself asking, how do you respond to those things? How do we, how are we, called by Christ to respond to the unmistakable truth that the world is not the way it is supposed to be. There are a number of options open to us, presented to us by examples around us. We can get angry and we can channel that rage into political or social activism. We can feel our hearts being filled with fear and kind of hunker down in a survivalist mode, separating ourselves as much as we can from the threats that we feel, isolating ourselves from the world around us. Sometimes we can become overwhelmed and kind of deny it is an issue for us in the immediate area thinking that it's not that big a threat. This wrongness of the world is not that big a threat to me or mine. And I can therefore kind of tune it out. I felt that working in my heart about a year ago when Team Jesus came down and one of the people that joined us in worship that Sunday night was a young girl who grew up in Pella who told her story about how she was caught up through a trap house in the world of drugs and sexual exploitation. I heard her story and I found myself saying, oh my gosh, that isn't just, that doesn't just happen in places like Chicago and New York and San Francisco. It happens right outside my front door. Or we can feel powerless. 
and afraid and simply do what we can to keep the evil at bay in our houses, our own individual houses, while adopting a kind of laissez-faire, live and let live approach with regards to the world around us. There are just some of the options that are available to us in responding to the reality that the world is not the way it is supposed to be. Now, my, my purpose today is not to judge any of those responses. Looking at and evaluating those responses, that's not my point. Given that the focus for me of this year is the question, who are we followers of Jesus called to be in the world today? My goal is rather to listen to Jesus and discern who it is that he tells us to be in this not-the-way-it-is-supposed-to-be world. It's my goal to listen to him, tell us what it means for us to stand in the world as his followers. There is no doubt in my mind that we are called to stand for Christ, and that means that we will live in this world in ways that are different, discernibly different, than people who are not part of God's kingdom. We will love different things. We will desire a different future. We will respond to life in ways that are odd to those who do not follow Christ. I'm sure of that. And I am equally sure that no one but Christ has the right to teach us what we are to stand for, and how it is that we are to stand in this world. Last week, we listened to Jesus teach his followers that life in his kingdom, standing for him in this world, begins with a really odd admission. It begins with us admitting and embracing our poverty of spirit admitting that we aren't strong enough or wise enough or good enough to live our lives in a holy manner. And as a result, we instead turn to him in full reliance upon the one who is everything that we are not. Again, that's an odd starting point from the world's perspective that teaches us in many different ways that if we're going to be uh, competent adults, it doesn't begin with admitting that we are weak and that we are impoverished, but rather it begins with us saying, I am good, I am strong, I am wise, I am capable, I am able. Celebrating the beauty in us. That's, that's what it means to live according to the world's standards, but not according to Christ's. For the follower of Christ, this admission of and embracing our poverty is the unshakable foundation of our standing in this not the way it is supposed to be world. Today's lesson that Jesus teaches us is equally as strange. Jesus makes it clear that 
our standing in this fallen world as his followers does not begin with any of the options named above. Based on what Jesus said in the second beatitude, I would say that our response to the evil in this world begins not by getting angry or being filled with fear or overwhelmed or feeling powerless, but with mourning, with grieving in our prayers and in our hearts, coming to our God grief-stricken. Again, this is not a natural reaction to the pain caused by the world's fallenness. We don't like mourning. We find it embarrassing. We see it as a sign of weakness. We think it's something to be ashamed of and done only in private at the most extreme situations of pain. And so our natural response is to, to, is to do everything we can to avoid it. We numb our hearts. We teach our kids things like when the going gets tough, the tough get going. The tough don't mourn. The tough don't grieve. The tough get hard and angry. But Jesus taught something different when he said, blessed are those who mourn. Good and right and true are those who, before doing anything else, mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, first of all, sins and death's presence and power in this world. Blessed are those who do not hide. Dad, do you want to? There we go. Blessed are those who do not hide their eyes from this horrid and ugly thing called sin, which has come into life and brought the appalling thing called death with it. Good and right and true are those who look at it and grieve that both are still here and who call out, in response, our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come. Blessed are those who mourn the consequences that follow sin's workings. Again, sin exacts all kinds of consequences. Blessed are those who do not hide their eyes from the lives that are lost, that do not hide their eyes from the pain that lingers, that do not hide their eyes from the ways that people are torn apart and being torn apart and relationships are ruined. They do not hide their eyes from the ways that foolishness flourishes in sin's darkness and, eternal and the eternal damnation that comes to those who are locked in sin's clutches. 
Good and right and true are those who see and who cry out to God for the end of these things to come. Blessed are those who mourn the fact that sin's ultimate target is God's heart. Although this world and its inhabitants are the place where Satan is active, we are not his ultimate target. He is striking at our creator through us. He is lashing out at the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And if Jesus weeping at Lazarus's tomb and his lament while he stood and looked over the over Jerusalem are any indication, Satan's strategy is effective. Good and right and true are those who see that and who grieve for the pain that God endures. Blessed are those who mourn the fact that we, we who know God's grace and love, continue to dance with sin, so to speak. Paul in Romans 7 18 to 19 is uniquely transparent when he shares what he knows to be true about himself, saying, for I desire to do what is right. Well, for I, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's the dance. Those of us who know God's love and grace, who know Christ's sacrifice for us, continue to do the things that part of us, our, our whole, the holiness, the righteous part of us, doesn't want to do. We continue to do those things that we know are sinful. I think the reason that Paul put himself out there like that is to give all of Christ's followers the courage to be as honest with ourselves as he was. We are all there. We are all like him. No matter how long we've walked with Christ and how many times we have tasted his grace and seen his goodness and love, we are still drawn by sin and abandon our Savior to dance with the devil. John puts it quite bluntly in 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Sometimes it's in what we do that we dance. It's in the words that we speak. It's in the thoughts that we think. Sometimes it's in what we don't do when we have the opportunity. How we sin doesn't really matter, whether by commission doing something sinful or omission, not doing something righteous, we are still sinning. We are still dancing. Good and right and true are those who see that and who lament it, who mourn it, Who say, along with Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from myself? 
last of all, blessed are those who mourn the why of that continued dancing. I again turn to Paul and allow Christ to work through Paul's honesty. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Can you relate? Even when I want to do right, evil is right there. How many of you know what this is like? We have the opportunity to go up to the Bethel Mission, right? How many of you go through Tuesday morning and afternoon saying, oh, man, I wish we didn't have to go up to Bethel Mission. We have the opportunity to go and preach Christ and reveal Christ and love a fallen humanity in the way that Christ can only love them. And instead, we have that opportunity and evil's right there. We can go and proclaim Christ, and I'm saying, oh, man, I don't want to do that. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. We may think that we've made great progress in faith and in righteousness, but Paul shows us a somber picture. Until the day of Christ's return, when our mortal bodies will be remade into our immortal We will continue to battle sin, good and right and true are those who see this and who mourn it, who grieve it. I hear that and I find myself asking, but Jesus, why mourn? It seems like a strangely ineffective way to deal with evil, whether outside of us or inside of us. Why mourn? Well, first of all, because of what Jesus said last week. We have no other option but to mourn. Because we are poor in spirit. We are not endowed with the goodness or the wisdom or the strength to live our lives in holiness, as Paul just made clear in Romans 7. And if we don't have the goodness and power and strength or the goodness and wisdom and strength to live our own lives in holiness, how in the world are we going to make a difference outside of us? That inability to be the people we want to be and to make a difference in the world the way we want to make should lead us to grieving, to mourning. And that's, I think, exactly where Christ would have us. Because, secondly, mourning puts us in the place where the Holy Spirit can begin to work first in us 
and second through us. First in us. In our mourning, we are in a position where the Holy Spirit brings us the comfort our hearts long for. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a preacher in an earlier age, described the connection between mourning and comfort well in a sermon that he preached on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the man who mourns is really blessed, says Christ. That's the paradox. In what respect is he blessed? The man who truly mourns because of his sinful state and condition who is a man who is going to repent. And the man who truly repents as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit upon him is a man who is certain to be led to the Lord Jesus Christ. Having seen his utter sinfulness and hopelessness, he looks for a Savior and he finds him in Christ. No one can truly know Christ as his personal Savior and Redeemer unless this man has first of all known what it is to mourn it is only the man who cries out, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me, who can go on to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's something that follows as surely as the night follows day. If we truly mourn, we shall rejoice. We shall be made happy. We shall be comforted. For it is when a man sees himself in this unutterable hopelessness that the Holy Spirit reveals to him the Lord Jesus Christ as his perfect satisfaction. It is only when we see that we are hopeless that the light of the beauty and power and goodness of Christ begins to shine and then other things follow things like complete transformation anyone who is in christ who has tasted mourning and has therefore been led to the cross to see the beauty of christ to be overwhelmed by the light of christ anyone who is in christ at that point he or she is a new creation Yes, I continue to mourn, but I don't mourn without hope. I mourn with hope. I mourn with expectation. I mourn with anticipation for what Jesus is going to do. What Jesus will begin to do in me and through me. Faith and hope are born. When we have the courage, the ability to mourn. Again, from Lloyd-Jones, as the Christian looks at the world, and even as he looks at himself, he is unhappy. He mourns, but he is immediately comforted. He knows there is a glory coming. He knows that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. He knows, indeed, that this is not the way that it will always be. He knows that a day will dawn when Christ will return and sin will be banished from the earth and with sin will go death and mourning and crying and pain. 
there will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It is at the foot of the cross that transformation and hope and faith spring. And then, as the Holy Spirit works in us to allow us to experience the comfort of, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 3, the God of all comfort. Once we experience the comfort of God, the Holy Spirit makes of us salt and light. Creatures who extend to the world around us the comfort that we've been given. Again, this world pushes people to respond to evil and the consequent pain in all kinds of ways. Given the world we live in, let us hear what Paul wrote again to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our distress, who comforts us in our mourning, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have been given, we ourselves have received from God. Namely, we can comfort others by helping them come to the cross, to the place where, the only place where comfort is to be found. We who have experienced true comfort have a different message to the world. The solution to pain and evil is not anger or fear or despair. The solution is God. The solution is Christ. The solution is mourning, allowing for the Spirit to bring to us the comfort of God and experience that through his grace and mercy and delight in his goodness. Blessed are you who mourn for you will be comforted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we can't deny that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. All we have to do is turn on the news or listen to the radio. Day in, day out, stories come. Year in and year out, we see numbers, statistics that make it undeniable. We are not the way we are supposed to be either. It doesn't take much reflection for us to remember things that we have done or words that we have said, thoughts that have flown through our minds that are not righteous. It doesn't take much reflection for us to remember how we have avoided speaking or doing 
or thinking righteous, holy things. We mourn both of those realities today. As Christ has said, that's the second step we take in standing in this world. We admit, Heavenly Father, we admit both realities. And we grieve that. And in our admitting and in our grieving, we pray, Father, for your spirit to bring comfort to our hearts. That you will shine in us the light of grace and mercy and help us taste forgiveness and reconciliation and see ahead to a future that is coming and look forward with eager anticipation for the day when Jesus will come again with the voice of the archangel will call and all of those who belong to your kingdom will be drawn into the place that you have prepared for us. And Father, as that light shines in us, we pray that it will shine through us. In a world that advocates for anger or fear or desperation, or being overwhelmed, inspire us to stand with the truth and to stand in the unique way that your people are called to. To this end, Father, work in us by your spirit. Work in us, transform us both in our minds and in our being. Make of us your citizens. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name.